Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Uh, some creative things. Well, one one opportunity that's come up with the regulations on qualified opportunity zones is that it does appear in some cases that you can do a qualified opportunity zone investment if your 1031 exchange fails. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is Viku, and you're now listening to my show, the Real Estate Lab podcast. Hey, what is up, my friend? How are you doing? Are you still at home or are you out in the world again to achieve your greatness? Listen, wherever you are, I genuinely appreciate you tuning in to listen to my show every week. It's been a pleasure serving you each week through this podcast. Hey, I'm super excited to share with you today's episode. We're going to chat about 1031 exchanges and different ways to take advantage of it. We even talk about how you can use 1031 money and put that into a syndication. So I have the dynamic duel from Madison 1031 joining us today. Now, one of them is a social entrepreneur and food tax expert. He's a Russian Israeli American Jew rabbi. He was Silicon Valley's food entrepreneur and strategic advisor to the world's largest biotech seed accelerator and now he is the regional sales representative of madison 1031 rabbi alex sandrovsky all right that's not all we have another guest joining alex on the show right before i share his impressive resume with you i want to take a moment to share with you something special i am on a mission to get 100 reviews for this show so I'm going to, I'm just going to bribe you. I'm giving away 10 copies of Michael Hyatt's book called Free to Focus, a Total Productivity System to Achieve More by Doing Less. And you see, most people think productivity is about finding or saving time, but it's not. In Free to Focus, New York Times best-selling author Michael Hyatt's reveals ways to redefine your goals, evaluate what's working, and cut out all of the non-essentials. All you need to do to get a copy of this book is to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and a review for me on iTunes. You can then send a screenshot to me, v at realestatelab.live, along with your shipping address, and I will send a copy out to 10 random listeners. The best part, hey, you don't even have to pay for shipping. I'll cover everything and send it out to you. All right, let's talk about my second guest who's joining Alex on the show. He is the executive vice president of Madison 1031. He is a certified exchange specialist, and he is also an attorney. These guys know the letter of the laws like the back of his hands. His seminars have received rave reviews because it's incredibly 
informative and entertaining at the same time. It's impressive that he's able to make the subject that is so dry so entertaining at the same time. So without further ado, let's welcome Mr. Michael Brady and Alex Sandrovsky to the show. Let's dive in. Welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Thank you so much, Michael and Alex, to uh, join me here today. The pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This has been great. Awesome, awesome. Hey, so first question for both of y'all. What happens when a CPA, a lawyer, and a salesperson walk into a Waffle House? <laughs> that's funny. It's always gas stations. So that's, you have to be on LinkedIn in order to get that joke. Otherwise, you're, uh, you're missing out. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> So uh, Michael was just talking, uh, sharing a little bit uh, with me about that luncheons that uh, the three of you had, you know, with uh, Bernard Rees. He was on uh, one of the previous episodes on on my podcast as well. Oh, nice. Oh, <laughs> gosh, this is great. Bernard is smart. He's oh, very yeah. smart. Super, super smart. And um, he was referred to me by uh, Yona Weiss, another person, I guess, <laughs> in, in your circle as well. Yon is a good friend. He's a colleague of ours. Oh, Madison, right? Madison. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Right. Yon is the Yon is the cost egg king. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now I have yeah. Michael Brady, the ten thirty one king. <laughs> I have. I need to come up with a different title. I think it's a, that's been used already. But uh, yeah. Oh yeah. No. Someone, had, someone else had used it, huh? Yeah. Well, at least the, the king part. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll go with the Earl of 1031 or something the like Earl, that. Earl of 1031, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, you know, it's great to have you both here with us um, sharing your knowledge about, you know, IRS 1031, um, subsection 1031. Um, for the audience that are not familiar with it, uh, Michael, can you do like a quick overview of what it is? Sure. Uh, really, it's for anybody who's selling investment real estate who would have to otherwise pay capital gain, right? They're fortunate enough to have bought the property low and sold it high. And as a result, they have capital gains taxes they have to pay when they sell. Uh, so they can defer those taxes by instead rolling over their proceeds into a new property. Okay? And that's essentially an exchange of one property for the other. When they do that, they defer the taxation. But you have to have a, a qualified intermediary in the middle so that the money will flow directly from the taxpayer to us and then from us to the seller of the replacement property so that the taxpayer is just receiving a property for a property and not actually receiving the proceeds from the sale. Because once you receive the proceeds, then you have to pay taxes. So that's our role in the transaction. Right. So how many kinds of um, exchanges are there? Well, uh, the, the typical ones are a forward exchange. That would be where you sold first and then you purchased your replacement property after. Uh, you can also have a swap transaction where you're just trading deeds with somebody. That's a real uh, rare transaction, but very simple. You actually don't need a qualified intermediary for that transaction. You can also do a reverse exchange where you buy first and then sell your property. Uh, and that's a completely somewhat complex structure, but we, we kind of specialize in that. We do quite a bit of those. And we also do a construction or an improvement exchange. They're kind of the same thing where uh, not only are you going to buy the property, but you're going to use your sales proceeds from your sale to make improvements to that property before the exchange is complete. So let me ask you there with the, um, let, let me just go into reverse exchanges first. 
Um, I understand the forward exchange, there are limitation uh, things uh, such as the 95% rules. And there's a time frame like the 45 days and the 180 days that you have to follow. Um, what rules do you have to follow for the reverse exchange? Yeah, so they're the same rules, you know, so we have, you know, the identification rules is what you were referring to first, you know, so you have to identify your in the forward exchange, your replacement property, and you have 45 days from the closing of the sale to do that. You can identify up to three properties regardless of value. If you exceed three properties, you're limited to 200% of the value of that, that you sold. So if you sold for a million, you can identify four or more properties up to $2 million. Okay, so those are the, those are the forward exchange rules. The same rules apply in a reverse exchange. So you have to identify your relinquished property, the property you're selling within 45 days, and uh, you have those limits as well. You're limited up to three potential properties and the 200% rule, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but more importantly, what you cannot do is own both properties at the same time. So what happens is we actually buy the replacement property, typically the replacement property. We set up a, a limited liability company, the taxpayer loans us the money to go buy the property. We buy it. We take title to it. We hold it until they sell. And then essentially after they've sold their property, they buy the replacement property from us for tax purposes. That's what, the structure. What price? Um... It's the, it would be the same price at, at which they acquired the property or we acquired the property in their name. Okay. And uh, so we don't make any money on the property. If, they do, if there's some construction that's done during the interim, uh, would be the purchase price plus the cost of the construction would be the acquisition price. And essentially what they do is they use the sales proceeds from their sale to buy the property from us. And, and just just to make sure this is clear is that you want to use up the all the proceeds from the sale of the property in order to delay the defer capital gains. So you know if you've if the property you've sold is going to be half a million dollars, those proceeds are all going to roll into the new property that you're purchasing. Even if in the reverse exchange, the QI has already purchased a property you're looking to exchange for. So mm -hmm. just keep that in mind, you can go beyond the half a million dollars, but you only use up as much, all the proceeds so you avoid paying capital gains tax. And uh, what happened to the loan in that case? Let's say, you know, that half a million. Oh, I loan. like this question, Michael. This is nice, right? We, this, <laughs> this is good. We, this is not like a little... Uh, you know, sandbox 1031 exchange conversation. We're going into the deep end. <laughs> Thank you so much, V. This is no great. Problem. Yes. So you're asking what happens with a loan in what case? Right. Yeah. And so what happened to the loan? Let's say you you already have a uh, that property for five hundred thousand, right? And then you sold it for a million. You have half a million gain, um, but your loan is still in place. Uh, you pay off your loan on your new property on the reverse exchange. How does that exactly work? Because uh, your company jump in and buy that property, then right. I would have to go get a loan to qualify for a loan and, and start over. Well, yeah. What will happen is uh, essentially to do a reverse exchange, you know, it is complicated. So you do need the, so we are not going to come out of pocket to buy the property. So the taxpayer, to the extent that they're coming up with cash to buy the replacement property, they will loan us that money. Okay. To the extent that they need third-party financing, they can do that. They have to set it up, but we, our entity will be the borrower, okay? So it's not that easy. You, you know, you're not going to just go to any lender and get a, a reverse 1031 exchange loan. You really need to work with a lender that you have a relationship with, uh, that has some creativity or ability to be flexible. And usually what they rely on then is not us because it's a shell entity. It's an empty LLC. 
they'll rely on a guarantee from the property owner or the taxpayer um, so that they know they're going to get paid at the end of the day. Okay. And then, so in, let's go to the uh, construction and improvement uh, exchange. Can you go buy a piece of land and, and do a new build construction with a 1031? Well, you could, but it, it's very complex. Well, first of all, in a forward exchange, you can do that. You can buy from a builder you know, who's going to do the construction before you take title. In a construction exchange, you know, this would be you would buy the land and you would do the construction. It's the same arrangement. We buy the property essentially with your money. We take title to it. And then you have up to 180 days to make the improvement. So that's really the downside in a ground up construction is that, you know, in 180 days, you know, where, how much you, are you going to be able to complete? You might be able to get your permits. Maybe you can excavate. Maybe you can get the foundation poured. So it doesn't work great for a ground up construction. It really works a lot better on a rehab where you can add the value quickly. Okay. So let's say Mike, you can, want, can you, can you talk that through for a second with a, when you buy a rehab, they can get the value quickly. I just, can you just open that up for a sec? Yeah. So, you know, so if you're buying something that's already built, and let's say you need to put a roof on it or you need to do siding or replace the windows, you know, all that work, you can get permits on that pretty quickly. And that work can be done in literally a couple of weeks. If you have to build something from the ground up, that's a whole different ballgame, right? You have to get some, you know, site plan approval. You have to submit architectures for architectural drawings. You know, there's a whole more involved process in doing a ground up construction compared to, you know, most rehab work. But we, just just to add to Mike is that we you you're not a big you're not gonna be allowed to do a flip on that home right away. So okay. if you're looking if you yeah. do a construction yeah. exchange with intent of flipping the home within you know that year, that's gonna be disallowed by 1031 purposes because the goal here is to only be able to do an exchange for the purpose of investment, and a flip is not considered to be investment. It's considered to be inventory that you're gonna have to sell. So. That's really important, I think, to just add on. Don't people make the confusion that I could do construction exchange into a flip, and you can't. Uh, that's yeah. not going to be the case. Yeah, that's a great point, Alex. Unless that flip is um, over a year and a day. Uh, well, there's no magic holding period. So, you know, uh, in order for the property to be considered held for investment rather than resale. The courts and the IRS have looked at a number of factors, and amongst them is the holding period. That's the most evident one because it's right on the face of your tax return. Um, but they also look at what was the purpose. You know, so if you just bought a property today, held it for you know, uh, you know, twelve months in one day, that is not necessarily holding for investment, especially if you listed it for sale the second day after you bought it. You know, so really, it's the whole package of things that they would look at is to get audited. That being said, the holding period is the most evident. And so it's thought that a two-year holding period, everything else being equal, is considered relatively safe. There's a number of uh, areas in 1031 where they look at two years. Um, or, you know, like you said, a year and a day, now at least you're straddling into a different tax year. So when you file your tax return, it asks, when did you acquire the property and when did you sell it? Right. And so, it's, you know, both years don't end in 20. So, you know, if both years did end in 20, it doesn't take the brightest guy at the IRS to figure out that maybe they want to take a look at that one. Uh, if it's 20 and 21, maybe it passes the smell test a little bit better. Got it. Got it. And uh, for those, those of you that are listening, we're talking to Alex and Michael from Madison 1031. Uh, you can reach out to their company, madison1031.com. Now, um, 
for the both of you, I just want to ask. Uh, this is seems like it's a sexy topic that people have been talking in the last few years, and that is uh, opportunity zones and opportunity funds. What sure. can you tell us about the um, the two, and are they similar? They're are they different, and uh, what are they? Well, ten thirty one exchanges are far better in opportunity zones. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> you know, so uh, as a qualified intermediary, you know, I've been in this industry. Oh, I've been involved in ten thirty one exchanges for over twenty five years. But as a qualified intermediary, it's been about uh, uh, was we now fifteen years or so since two thousand five. Um, when I first heard about qualified opportunity zones, I thought this was the end of 1031 exchanges. It just seemed like a really great program. Uh, but when you look at it, you know, it really depends on the investor. So most of my clients, um, that the opportunity zone doesn't make sense. You know, so an opportunity zone, you basically have to take capital gains. You can take capital gain from any asset. So you can sell stock, you can sell bonds, you can sell collectible artwork and take the gain and you have to invest it in an opportunity zone fund. Uh, which will then in turn invest in a qualified opportunity zone, which is a lower income community, uh, which has been designated specifically as an opportunity zone. Uh, I'm sorry, a qualified opportunity zone. So um, they, uh, so they are in all 50 states and all the territories of the United States. Uh, but the downside is, what people don't realize is, you get to invest your capital gain, but you do have to pay taxes on that capital gain in in 2026 taxable with tax technically paid in 2027. So if you invested a million dollars of gain, you know, you will get a step up in basis in most cases. Uh, so that in right now, if you held it for five years, uh, you would get 10% step up in basis. So your million dollars, which is otherwise taxable would only be $900,000 that was taxable. But in 2026, it is taxable. So you will pay the taxes definitely. The bonus though, is that if you hold the property for 10 years, any appreciation over your initial investment will be tax-free. Okay. So if you invested a million dollars and now you held it for 10 years, uh, again, you paid taxes 2026, but if it's worth $2 million you know, in 10 years, which would put it to 2030, uh, that extra million dollars of gain is tax-free. Okay, so it's very powerful for somebody who's, who's looking to do that. Um, why I don't think it's for everybody is, well, number one, we're investing in zones that are uh, not established. They're lower income communities that you know, don't necessarily have a great investment track record to begin with. And you're hoping that through this program that the properties will become more valuable over time and, and that there'll be a great influx of investment in those areas. But that's not a guarantee. Number two, you have to hold the property 10 years really to get the full benefit. Many real estate investors, excuse me, um, want to get out before that. They hold their properties much less than 10 years. So that's another thing. You also cannot buy a triple net lease property in an opportunity zone. It has to be an actively managed property. And if you're buying real estate, it actually has to be substantially improved during the 30 months after you bought it, which means you have to add, if you bought it for a million dollars, you have to add another million and one dollars of improvement. Oh, so okay, it has so, to be more than the purchase price. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and not necessarily the purchase price, it's actually the value of the buildings on the property. It gets a little bit complicated, but you need to do a significant improvement to the, to the building or to the property. You know, so this is for somebody who's making a development fight. It's not for a passive investor um, or somebody that wants to get out in a short period of time. So 1031 exchanges also don't forget you're deferring the taxes indefinitely. So you do not have to pay the taxes unless you sell and cash out. Um, so you, you know, defer some other it until you die. 
Right. You swap until you drop. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, so you continue to do 1031 exchanges during the course of your lifetime. And when you pass away, your state under current tax law gets a step up in basis and the capital gains disappear. Okay. Um, some other disadvantages. Uh, be, you need to invest cash in a qualified opportunity zone. So your gain has to be invested as cash. Whereas in the 1031 exchange, when we invest, we typically can replace our debt from our relinquished property by taking on debt on our replacement property. Um, I, there's a bunch of others, you know, I, I do a nice presentation, uh, Alex has actually seen it, I think, where I kind of go back and forth and I call it the rumble in the tax jungle. Um, you know, maybe we'll put something online at some point with that, which, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll let your readers know about. But there's a number of factors you really have to consider. So that um, that webinar you said, is is it internal training that you have? Is it Or is it something public that uh, we can get access to? Yeah, we're, we'll probably put something up. We don't have anything online. Uh, we actually, I actually do this as part of uh, a live presentation where I'm before, you know, uh, I usually do a lot of seminars for CPAs and attorneys and, and real estate brokers. Uh, so we haven't, we have not yet put it online, but we will at some point. And I think it's a kind of a useful tool for people making those decisions. And it's certainly people can call me if they have questions. Um, so if you want to get a hold of uh, Michael, uh, you can reach him at 631-241-3812. His email is mbrady at madison1031.com. And you can contact Alex as well. You know, Alex is, is up on this stuff as well. Alex, I don't know if you want to give your information. I think LinkedIn is the best way to reach me is yeah. Alex Chandrovsky. And, uh, I, and I specifically, uh, my specialist 1031 exchanges, if you're interested in opportunity zones, I'll definitely bring Mike in to have that conversation. Um, but again, there's like, like Mike says that there are definite uh, differences between the two opportunities, but they're great things to consider, especially again, if you are, um, because, because of the tax and jobs act that was passed uh, recently, you know, personal property can now no longer be exchanged right. in a 1031 exchange. So those individuals who are having personal property that has gained value, like Mike has referred to, like uh, art or cars, um, you know, and has appreciated value, they might look at opportunity zones as a good solution. Because again, that's not going to be allowed in a 1031 exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So then I just came up with this, it may, may, may or may not apply. Let's say um, you made a bunch of money in the crypto run. Can you do that? Can you exchange that into opportunity funds? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I actually haven't looked at that. I assume so. I think because it has to be capital gains. And I believe, I'm not an expert on crypto. So, uh, but my belief is that crypto, when you sell it, it is actually treated as capital gain. Right. And therefore, therefore, it should be eligible to be reinvested in a qualified opportunity zone. But I'd have to actually look at it specifically. Yeah. So I mean, this is a, a real estate show, so I, I don't expect you to know it. It's just <laughs> something that came up in my mind because um, yeah, yeah. you know, crypto is on the up again. So I'm yeah, sure. I mean, sure. there there were a bunch of millionaires created, you know, during that that run, and a lot of people uh, lost money as well. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of uh, every new technology, right? You have your winners and your losers, and uh, it's kind of a flip of the coin which side you you wind up on. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, so another topic that I wanted to uh, chat with you all is, um, you know, using 1031 for syndication. I, I know, um, Alex, when we, you know, chat initially, that's one of the topic that um, you want to share. And a lot of people still don't know that you can do this. But 
I personally have have done this, but I want to hear from you all um, just to explain, you know, exactly the things that you need to do to make it happen. So I'll I'll just start it out and yeah. and Michael bring it home. So just let's try to understand why we think that syndication might be a problem. Well, let's oh. let's start with that. Okay. Let's start that point. And it really comes down to uh, you're essentially on the property when you do a ten thirty one exchange. You need to have the same. The seller and the buyer have to essentially have the same uh, EIN. So it has to have some tax ID number. Okay. So in that case. If you have an LLC, right, which has its own, uh, and you have two partners in the LLC, the LLC has its own tax identification number. So when the two of them are doing 1031 exchange, uh, that partnership, they will basically purchase, uh, uh, they will, in a, in a typical case, will go in and try to purchase a property together in a 1031 exchange. Now, there's a way to do it that they can, uh, they can break up and do a 1031 exchange, but typically, Again, the same tax idea has to be both in the sale and in the buy, right? the same taxpayer. So in that case, it would be the LLC. When you have a syndicate, it's a little strange because if you're a single member LLC or just which is, uh, or you are in just say a sole proprietor uh, and you're purchasing the property or you sell, let's say you're selling your property and then going to a syndicate, that's you going from being, what, being the taxpayer who's going to a partnership with a different tax ID. Right, so essentially, going from a partnerships in, go, you're going from a partnership to the same partnership, fine, but going from being a single member into a partnership it becomes a challenge, which is typically how a syndicate would look, right? Syndicates right, typically right. would be a, an a, an LLC with it with a GP and LP. Right. So that's when we start having a challenge with this notion of how do we bring the 1031 money inside the syndicate in a syndicate deal because you're a single individual. Was trying to bring in money into partnership, which has a different tax ID. Mike, can you add to this point and then bring it yeah. home? Yeah, and generally that that's accurate. The one thing I would say is, you know, tax IDs. You're right. Generally, the tax ID stays the same, but we don't really worry too too much about the actual tax ID number because um, we use disregarded entities that may have this, you know, different tax ID numbers. Really, we look at who's filing the tax return. You know, so the party that's Thanks. you know, you know. Is it has to be all filed on the seller's tax return. So if you have an L, you know, a, a single person, they're going to show the property on their tax return. When they buy the replacement property, they have to show a property on their tax return. Um, by investing in a syndicated deal, they're not buying a property interest; they're buying a partnership interest. Generally, in the, in the current setup, mm -hmm. you know, when they buy as a limited partner in an LLC. So what you would have to do is you would have to set up a tenant in common relationship. Okay, so that your 1031 investor would actually get a deeded interest in the property. Okay, they would be, you know, they might own a 25% interest and the syndicated entity with everybody else would own 75%. Okay, so then they, they go um, and they set up a tenant in common agreement between the two entities, you know, the, the 1031 investor and everybody else. So where is this creates friction is in a syndicated deal is often within the syndicate, you have two classes of partners. You have a general partner and a limited partner. The general partner is generally the syndicator, right? The syndicator is the guy who found the board girl or woman, I should say, who found the property, um, you know, who found the investors for the property, who manages the property and who will ultimately sell the property at the end of the deal. Often the syndicator does not put much, if any, capital into the deal. A lot of it is sweat equity, right? Right, right. So 
in a tenant in common relationship, that doesn't work. In a tenant in common relationship, the anybody who invests has to receive an interest proportionate to their investment. So if I put 25% of the cash in, I have to get a 25% interest in the property. Okay. So that's another reason why, you know, it doesn't work to buy into a syndicated entity. So what'll happen is the tick agreement will provide that I'm getting, I'm investing 25% as a 1031 investor, as a tenant in common owner, and I have to get 25% of the profit, right? I'm responsible for 25% of the losses, but I'm I need to get 25% of the profit. Whereas the syndicate, you know, syndicator wants to get a piece of the action, but they haven't put capital in. So you can do all that in the syndicated entity, right? With all the other people who are not 1031 investors, but the 1031 investor has to be treated differently, at least, at least initially. Um, you can do some things. So, you know, the syndicator can earn the management fee for the property, which the, the 1031 entity, the tick entity can pay. Uh, you can even, because you also have unanimous consent issues, 10, you know, tick investors have to have unanimous consent on many issues. So they have to approve sales and financing and things like that. So what you can do is you have the syndicator be a member of the 1031 entity. And I'm sorry, not a member. That's a, that's a, I should back up. Now remember, they could be a manager. Manager, yeah. That entity, so they have some control over that entity, even if that they don't have ownership. So there are some things you can do, but initially it has to look like it has to be set up as a tick between the two entities, and then maybe somewhere down the road, a year to two years, you might can have the 1031 investor come in to the syndicated entity if you're going to hold the property that long. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Alex, can you have something you, can to you share with us? Can you share with us your experience? Were you the LP or the GP on that deal for the 1031? The LP. Um, so it's a funny story. Uh, I read the rule wrong. So what happened was that I was down to the wire. I had literally about five days away from the 45 days of identification. And um, I came across a deal where um, it was a done deal already, but uh, they were still trying to raise uh, more in the back end and uh, they could take 1031 money. So we look at the deal real quick and we're like, okay, let's just, let's do it. So, um, you know, it's a take just like you described. And um, we have a, an LLC where the, uh, the person who the operator uh, is a manager of. Right. Okay. LLC. Yep. So same setup as yeah. you described. So, so right. I'm sorry. So the manager, so you had the, the GP became a manager of your tick's interest of the uh, of the LLC for that tick. Yeah. So our our original uh, entity, original LLC, uh, is a member of a new LLC now, and then this operator is the manager of that new entity. And did they have all full voting control, meaning they could initiate a sale on your LP? Yeah. And, and did you guys do a hold of like? Sorry, sorry for the listeners. This is just really interesting. Um, so, so three to five years, did you do a hold or what, what was the, what was the syndicate play? It, it's still, um, a hold right now. Um, we were, we wanted to, uh, you know, it's a valid play. So you need to improve it to a certain point. Then, then you sell and it's still a five-year play. We're three years into, into it. And then is your goal to do a 1031 out of the syndicate at the end or cash out? Um, that's. That's my goal is, is to uh, keep on doing 1031 unless my business partner um, wants to get out and then I have to sell and then pay capital gain at that point. Mike, Which, you want to talk to that case? Because I think that's interesting. Just uh, in, in that case, when you want to leave the syndicate. 
Yeah, well, in this case, it's easy because you're already in a tenant in common, right? But if you were not, if you were in the entity, then we'd have, you know, essentially if any of those investors in the in the other syndicated entity wanted to get out, at some point prior to the sale, you would basically have to deed them out as tenants in common, uh, and then they can go their, their separate ways. Typically, you want to do that as far in advance of a sale as possible um, to kind of, you know, make them two separate transactions. And, you know, depending on the state that you're in, you know, like I wouldn't necessarily, especially any kind of short-term hold uh, for the investor as a tick, you wouldn't want to do that in states like California, and you wouldn't want to do it in many cases in New York, because the states actually have challenged a lot of those transactions. But in many other states, like non-income tax states like Texas or Florida, you know, you don't worry as much because the federal government uh, doesn't seem to have challenged those, you know, so recently. And you're referring to where the property is located, right? Where the property is located, most often, most importantly, where the property is located. Uh, you do you do have to look at where the investor is located also, because don't forget the investor, you know, has to file a state income tax return. Uh, that's usually less of a concern, but there is that potential that, you know, New York could look at California's investor, a California's investment, a California investor's investment, I should say, in uh <laughs> in let's say Denver where you are right. and they, they may say, you know, you should have paid us our share of the income taxes. Your exchange is valid. I have not heard of that happening, but it is a possibility. Got it. Got it. So that led me to the, the next question on an, an exit. Let's say my business partner wanted to, um, you know, go retire and, and now we have to pay capital gain and um, pay everything else go along with it, including depreciation recapture. Right. It's a lot of uh, taxes that I have to pay. <laughs> Is there a way yeah. to uh, to avoid that? Yeah, there's two essential ways. You know, you could, you know, if you had the capital, you could buy him out. You know, if you had other cash, you can just buy him out of the partnership. Uh, but typically, that's not a, a possibility. And so, what you would do is what I kind of just described—a drop and swap, where essentially you would dissolve your partnership, deed the property out to each of you as tenants in common, and then you go your separate ways. Um, again, you want to do that with some advanced planning. So, you know, you don't want to do it on the eve of the sale. You want to maybe do it before you even find a buyer, um, if possible, before you even list the property. So if that's a possibility, you might want to have that conversation with you or your partner now. Um, and then you can, you know, set up two tick entities, essentially, to invest with the syndicate, and then you're free to go. Um, the other alternative is that you could just do a swap and drop, and you, you and your partner stay together go buy a replacement property with all the money and then refi and pay your partner off that way. That means you're going to buy a much. Okay. Got it. That means means you're going to buy a bigger project than you might want, you know, because you're investing a hundred percent of the sales proceeds instead of 50% of them. Um, And then you're on the hook. Yeah. And you're on the hook for a mortgage. Yeah. Right. Right. So once you park the money, after you've done a 1031, you can just go refi cash out. And that tax, that money is tax free. Yeah, there's there's some, uh, I guess, uh, question as to how long you need to wait. But at some right. point, you can certainly refinance. You know, uh, I typically recommend that you don't start the refinance process until after you closed on the property. You know, you don't want to set it up so that's already you know a done deal by the time you close. Uh, but there are people that say you can do it right away. Uh, so you just really have to judge your comfort level. I always recommend people talk to their accountant about that to make sure that the accountant is comfortable as well. No, I, I love 
I love your answer because you don't give me the typical lawyer's answer, which is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of did. I just said it a little bit nicer. <laughs> well, I, I think that yeah, I'll give you an interesting uh, snare just because your questions are so awesome. I'll give you an interesting snare just dealt with uh, actually last yesterday. There was a, a call with the temp a 1031 investor who went with a different QI. And what, what happened was that he essentially had a property that was a, that he inherited. He did that property appreciated and he did a 1031, but he has shown no income over the last couple of years. So essentially, and, and that original property had debt right, okay. on that property. So now he could not get approved for replacement debt on the new property. Right. Right. So essentially he couldn't, he, he basically, he sold off his property and he had to reinvest all of his assets, all of the proceeds inside the property, but he can't get underwritten for a new loan because he doesn't have income shown. Huh. The point we we're trying to show is that everything we spoke about in the last 15 minutes is comes back to two points, which is, you know, plan in advance, right? It's, uh, you don't want to go into this just because a person just read something online or uh, maybe he was Facebook targeted by a qualified intermediary company somewhere because they fit the profile. <laughs> really do your diligence, do your work. You know, your this is going to be the, one of the largest investments of your life and you want to take it really seriously. So, and work with both a CPA who is your interest in mind, also a qualified intermediary like Mass and 1031, who's going to give you real solutions. And often you'll be surprised how frequently Michael and I uh, discourage people um, for um, potentially doing a 1031 for one, one of the main reasons is actually they might not even have a gain to defer. <laughs> right. And that's, that's the reality. You know, people say, Oh, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do a 1031 exchange, but they haven't spoken to an account and really they have no gain. So why, right. why are you doing a 1031 exchange? If your property hasn't appreciated, <laughs> well, you do it because you think some fat phantom gain is there. It's really not. Right, right. And if you are, you know, for, for you that's listening at home or wherever you are listening to this recording, if you need an awesome CPA, uh, Bernard Rees, uh, one of my guests yes. uh, on episode 13 is a really qualified person. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's uh, great. very creative. He's very smart. Super proactive about um, your tax planning as well. We can still go for maybe one more questions here. Sure. Yeah, your, your questions are really awesome. We've been on a lot of podcasts. Uh, they're incredible. I think questions you're asking are really sophisticated and really enjoyable. So this is a lot of fun. Right, Mike? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so then um, let me go back. Um, so syndication, you do a take. And um, what are other ways that you see people uh, utilizing this 10, um, 1031 strategy along with the new um, job acts what what are some creative things that you've seen people done lately uh some creative things well one one opportunity that's come up with the regulations on qualified opportunity zones is that it does appear in some cases that you can do a qualified opportunity zone investment if your 1031 exchange fails okay, okay? which we didn't think was going to be possible because they both have the same deadline right so you have to reinvest you have to basically buy your replacement property within 180 days in the 1031 exchange, but you only have 180 days to invest in a qualified opportunity zone from, or from uh, in the fund from the, the, uh, from the sale of your asset. So initially we thought that one precluded the other, you had to choose, but actually the regulations uh, 
gave some possibilities where your 180 days may not run from the date of the sale of the real estate. It could run from the end of your tax year, depending on, you know, if you held the property in a partnership, um, you have the opportunity to either buy into a qualified opportunity zone as a partnership, which gives you a 180 day period, or you can take your partnership interest and the gain from that and invest it, you know, separately from your partners in a QOZ. And that date runs from your, your, the end of your tax year, which is usually December 31st. So if your exchange fails after 180 days, let's say, and let's say that 180 days in November, you know, you would usually be precluded at that point from doing a QOZ. But if it was a partnership that sold, you're going to find out what your gain is December 31st. And so your date only starts basically essentially January 1st the following year. That's something creative that we see. And there are some other scenarios where that's a possibility. Um, you know, some other things we see people doing, as we said, the, the construction exchanges are, are certainly something that people do. Um, investments in Delaware statutory trusts are another possibility. That's uh, basically you buy a percentage interest and in institutional property is managed by somebody else. Um, Alex, did you have anything? Yeah, I mean, one of the really, I think, popular ones that we're seeing is uh, the relationship between 121 exemption and 1031 exchanges. So mm -hmm. this is something that we've I've, I've come across quite frequently right now is that, for example, imagine an individual purchases a property and he makes uh, one of the rooms in the property his main residence, right? So it's primary residence. Uh, but then the other five, six, seven uh, rooms in the, in the bedrooms in the property starts renting out either through Airbnb or as a permanent rent. Uh, rent. Um, so what he, in that case, what he can actually do is this unique blend of these two uh, tax uh, tax saving structures, which is one is he can claim a 121 exemption for personal residence. Uh, uh, you know, if he's married up to $500,000, if he's single to $250,000, and he essentially can, um, and, and that not does not defer capital gains, it eliminates that capital gains up to $250,000 if you're single, half a million if you're married. But if he has a little leftover capital gains that he might be responsible for, he can defer through a 1031 exchange. So that's, uh, that's an interesting structure that people are utilizing in, in different formats where um, or alternative people are living uh, in a property for two years, then they move out of the property, and then they make that investment property. And then, uh, and then within five years, in the fifth year, they do a 1031 exchange claiming get a 121 exemption and the 1031. So that's a really, a really interesting tool that can be utilized for a property that's appreciated tremendously uh, in a short period of time. Yeah, for the, the tax and legal experts out there, you want to look at RevProc 2005-14. Just a little uh, site there for anybody that wants to read up on that. Google that. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, two questions that popped up when, um, while you were explaining that. Let you know. Let's say that you do 1031. You you swap until you drop right. Just right before you drop, can you move into that property? Or at any point you doing 1031, can you move in at all? Yeah, you can. You know, you don't want to do it. Uh, so you can move into your investment property and, and convert it to your primary residence. There's no taxes due upon that conversion. Uh, you don't want to do that right away. You know, you don't want to buy it Monday and do that Tuesday. Um, there are some cases. Uh, with all facts being considered, uh, I wouldn't necessarily rely on them as precedent where people have done it in as little as seven months, but that's after showing that they weren't able to rent the property and there are other factors. 
you know, I suggest you want to wait two years, you know, and if, especially if you have two years of solid rental uh, or more, you could move into it. And we do have people doing that. I have a client that sold a factory here and amongst his replacement properties, he bought a, a condo in Boca Raton, Florida, and has been renting it out for a number of years and will probably ultimately retire there. And that's, that works. That's awesome. That's really cool. And then the other question is sort of like uh, behind the scene questions. Let's say um, I what do sold... we do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> what, what Something what more than that. <laughs> um, so let's say I sold my property and I deposited all this money into the QI like uh, Madison 1031. Um, what do you do with that money in the meantime? We usually go to Vegas. And... <laughs> <laughs> Put it on red. <laughs> yeah. yeah, usually I'm, I'm more, I uh, like to put it on green, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. As you can see behind uh, Michael's, uh, whoever's watching the video. Yeah, yeah, I like the green see that his yeah. wall is green. Yeah. And it's yeah. not no, green screen, it is a green wall. <laughs> no, but that, that is a very important question. So, you know, it, it's really the most important question you can ask. So we, we put the money into escrow accounts. You know, so our typical account setup is there's a Madison Exchange escrow account. And we set up sub accounts for each of our investors under the taxpayer's name and tax ID number on most of our large dollar exchanges. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, we don't do anything risky with the money. But it's important to ask those questions because they're in most states, we're not regulated. Some states require that we be very conservative with the money, but many states don't, do not regulate our industry. And so you always want to know where the money is going and make sure that nobody's doing anything speculative with it. Because in the past, there have been some problems during the financial crisis there were qualified intermediary companies that had some financial difficulties and ultimately investors either lost their money or at the at bare minimum were not able to complete their exchanges on time because the funds weren't liquid. Uh, so, you know, we try to be very, very, you know, liquid, you know, the liquidity of our clients assets is the most important thing. Security, I guess is, is one a, I actually want probably one is security two is liquidity. Uh, I think they go hand in hand essentially. Uh, and so, you know, make sure you do your due diligence on your qualified intermediary. Right. So you don't actually take the money out to say loan to the repo market or anything. You just absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And there have been people that have done that. If you watch American Greed, there's a gentleman named Ed Oaken who did a whole bunch of, you know, speculative and shady things with the money. Um, but yeah, no, you, you can't, you know, this is other people's money. Uh, you also want to know that the company you're dealing with has some financial resources, you know, so we're part of a much larger company. You know, we have Madison Exchange, which is a large company in and of itself. Uh, we're affiliated with Madison Title, which is one of the largest uh, national independently owned title insurance companies in the country, which insures several billion dollars of transactions annually. And we have, you uh, talked about Yona Weiss earlier. Met, yeah. uh, Yona is part of our uh, cost segregation company, Madison Spec. Yeah, so we're we're a company with some financial resources, and we've been around a while. Uh, and you know, in addition, we're we're bonded, you know, against employee theft and mismanagement of our clients' funds. We have errors and omissions insurance. You know, all the all the bells and whistles to make sure at the end of the day, the most important thing is that the money is there uh, and ready to be reinvested. Great stuff. Now uh, I know Alex, you need to go soon, and and Michael, thank you so much for uh, yeah. you know doing this podcast with me. Let me ask you you two one last question before I let you both go. Sure. Um, what are some of the bad recommendations that you hear from people in your professional industry? Uh, uh, let's see, bad. Re well, first of all, 
as I, as Alex said earlier, we do recommend often that people do not do a 1031 exchange. It might not make sense. They're not saving enough in taxes. They're not saving anything in taxes. They don't have, they're not able to get a loan when they buy a property, right? So that's a big recommendation is to do an exchange when you shouldn't. The other one I would say is recommending that you buy a bad property just to save the taxes. That's the worst thing you can do. I'd much rather pay taxes than buy a property that's going to lose money. Because you may pay taxes of 30% on your gain, but you could lose everything in a bad investment. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've seen several times people advertise 1031 exchange money investments for flips. Those You want to just stay away from those people who are trying to find short-term investors for flipping homes. Uh, if you're looking at those opportunities that people have the intention of selling within the year, uh, that's a really bad sign. You, you want to basically say thank you and... <laughs> Maybe have a beer with that person, but never give him his money or her money. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tota. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast, man. Oh, I really so appreciate your time. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Hey, that was the end of the show. I hope you have enjoyed it. Make sure to check out Michael's website. It's www.madison1031.com. And that is madison1031.com. If you have any questions at all, make sure to send your email to Michael. Uh, his email is mbrady at madison1031.com. That is the letter M, Brady at madison1031.com. As always, if you have any feedback, comments for the show, make sure to send me an email. It's v at realestatelab.live. I'm your host, Viku, and signing off. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.